0: Welcome to the Real Love podcast series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with the world's finest thinkers and teachers, exploring Sharon's latest book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection.
1: So, welcome back to Sharon. There was one... (laughs) Yay! Whoa, thank
0: you. It's a New Yorker.
1: There was one question left hanging last night that I promised I'd answer. Uh, It's Ann's question about the science. And I was thinking about that, and and I thought, and I just said to to Sharon, I think it goes to faith. Like for a lot of us, it helps to know scientifically what the effects are of this practice just to beef up our own faith. And so I'm just going to give you a little list of I've been directing our, our research institute for the last 10 years, and we do know something now, and I, Sharon probably will add to this, but just very briefly in a few minutes, because I want Sharon to, um, to dive into a lot of other topics. Um, the first thing we know is that regular practitioners of, of meta actually significantly improve their perspective taking, that is their capacity, our capacity, to take the perspective of another. This is mediated through the temporal parietal junction and in the insula. Do I have any brain scientists in here? You'll, you'll probably know more about it than I do, but um, <coughs> this is a very significant finding and it goes to exactly what Sharon's been teaching about, about the capacity to make some space around your own rigidly held views. So perspective taking we know the plasticity of the autonomic nervous system. So we know that practitioners of metta and other forms of meditation and yoga, um, the, the practice actually tones the vagus nerve, the big, vagus means wandering, the big nerve that goes through the whole body. And, um, and what that means is that, and this again goes to what Sharon was teaching, I think last night, that it moves back and forth between states of arousal and states of relaxation more quickly. It's more plastic. Um, We know this with heart rate variability, too. Um, There is something called a refractory state, which is a very, and we all know this, a very dense state of craving or aversion. You might say a dense, intractable refractory state of grasping or hatred, um, and we all know these because we have them from time to time, just one of those ones you cannot shake. We know that regular, and, and in the, I would say this is the hell realm, right? That's what we would call it in, in the yoga tradition, that that dense state of, of grasping or aversion. We know that refractory states are significantly, um, the, the length of refractory states are significantly mm-hmm. modified by practice, which is a really good thing. And I honestly, I've noticed in the, that in myself. I come from a very anxious tribe of kind of high wasps who are really nervous about everything. <laughs> and
0: I didn't know there were people like that. No, oh, yeah. yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> That's why yesterday when the heat didn't work, it just totally threw me because I have this whole thing in my family about being a host. They're in my house. The heat doesn't work. I'm, I'm pissed. Well, I know a lot and, of Jews like that. I just didn't <laughs> know when he was like that. <laughs> um, and I really got in. My staff will tell you, like, it threw me. I, I was in a refractory state most of the morning. But I have found that that's lessened just a little bit. Um, okay. We know that it lessens reactivity and inflammation. And, of course, those things lead to depression, heart disease, diabetes. Um, Really interesting, and this came out of a study that we did through our friend Sarah Lazar who's with Richie Davidson, one of the top fMRI um, brain study folks in the country Enhances fluid intelligence So fluid intelligence is that kind of intelligence Again, not learning the state capitals, but creativity the capacity to think out of the box Sharon's lately in in your teaching I've noticed a lot of vein of creativity. It it enhances creativity. Um, And finally, neural networks are more robust with this kind of practice. And that simply means that more parts of the brain are talking to each other more of the time. This is sometimes called, Sarah Lazar did this study, and it's called small-worldedness, which means you can get to any part of the world of the brain from any other part really fast. So, it's all in the neighborhood. Do you have anything to add to that?
0: Uh, Yeah, Lily, I'm not sure this microphone is like in the right place. Hello, (laughs) and then it's. You're such a good host. (laughs) I had to tell you that reminded me of a story. It's true. What I meant was I don't know many people like that. I meant the wasp part (laughs) because I know quite a number of Jewish people exactly like that. (laughs) Uh, I was staying with a friend of mine. I was working on my book, which I did for a very long time uh, since I was so late with it, real love. And uh, I was staying with this friend in California who was helping me with the book. And She said she wanted to throw a dinner party. Just and have friends of mine come over, and I said, don't do that. I said, in this day and age, to have a dinner party is like a very anxiety-producing affair. You know, because you have the paleo people, and you have the vegans, and you have the gluten-free people, and the sugar-free people, and people who only eat fruit, and people who won't eat fruit, you know. And like, I said, don't do it, you know. Nice thought, but, but she really wanted to do it, and she said, I'll make a salmon, and I said, well... I have a few vegan friends I'd like to invite. And she said, I'll make this eggplant dish. I said, let me check. (laughs) So sure enough, they don't eat eggplant. (laughs) And we went through this whole thing. This poor woman was like such a... So these these people, these friends of mine who were coming, um, who were very strict about their food, they said, tell her not to worry, we'll bring our own food. (laughs) And I said, (laughs) she's a Jewish woman of a certain age. (laughs) I said... She'd die before she'd let you bring her own food. So anyway, all that case. I thought, that's called the refractory state. What do you know? Um, the, I Thank you so much for that. I it would be great if you wrote that up someday and yeah. people could refer to it, because it's, it's hard sometimes to collate uh, and find the different research projects if you're interested in them. Um, what we would say anecdotally, you know, experientially, is that even though practices combine those skills I talked about of concentration, mindfulness, and loving-kindness, certainly there are practices that emphasize a particular strand of that. And there hasn't been a lot of research differentiating um, those different kinds of methodologies. What we'd say anecdotally is that mindfulness... Helps us see the difference between what's actually happening and the story we are weaving about it. I need this to last forever. Um, This is great. This is painful. And it's not to say we will stop having a narrative, because we won't. And not all narratives are damaging, some are very onward leading. They're encouraging, they bring us together, they remind us of our own potential. And some, of course, are very old. They are very damaging. They're kind of useless. They come along quickly. But still, as quick as they can be, we can see the gap. We can find the gap. And remind ourselves, this is what's actually happening right now. You know, even as the punch of the proliferation is starting to heat up, you know, we can get in there in between the two. And then we choose. Do I want to... Take this story to heart. Do I want to strengthen it? Do I want to nourish it? Is this best just let go of? And in uh, some distinction to that, practices which emphasize loving kindness, like the metta practice, they say we'll switch our default story. So what rushes in most quickly? What's the kind of most immediate interpretation? Um, If we have been motivated, for example, largely by fear in what we do or what we say or what we hold back from doing or saying, which is another kind of action. And we strengthen loving kindness. We will find we are motivated more and more and more by a sense of connection. And I emphasize the motivated part because, remember I said that's the arena of the psyche that is most affected. It's not what we'll do but why we do things. It's not fair to ourselves, most of all, to say, well, if my meta were really good, then I'd say yes to everything, or I'd give a dollar to everyone on the street who asked me. It's not what we'll do, because there are a whole lot of other factors that figure into that decision point. I mean, I've, I've seen that, we've all seen that in ourselves and in others, right? But why we do things, why we say yes, even why we say no, can we do that with a heart that is acknowledging that we're connected rather than fear and hatred and kind of just disconnection from somebody else? That's what shifts. And it shifts in ways that are not, they're not stylized, they're not labored. It's not like you leave here and you go home and you run into a neighbor and, And you think they're the most annoying person in the world but the weekend was called loving kindness (laughs) you know I don't want them above all to think that I failed you know so I'll just smile uh it's not like that the shifts inside of us happen in in terms of this whole field of motivation so we find we're different can even be a big surprise like wow that was different you know look at that, I dropped that jar, I blew it, I did that, I was so much nicer to myself, or I had so much more resilience and ability to start over. I met that stranger, and oh, I actually listened to them. Or, you know, look at that. Um, you know, so it's not like a self-conscious uh, addition. And, uh, you know, so people, as I said, are starting to do more kind of, I guess, differential research between these practices. Um, I find that interesting. I find the research very interesting, mostly in the way Stephen talked about it, that it's inspiring for some people. I mean, there are many venues that are not Kripalu or the Insight Meditation Society. And if you walked in and said, let's chant Om three times, you know, it would be like, I don't think so. Uh, But you could pull out a piece of paper like that and say, you know, uh, or these are the consequences of stress. This is what it's shown. Uh, thus far meditation can do in terms of stretch stress and it's like a new languaging uh so i think of it sometimes the way Buddhist teaching went from country to country and one of the things they say the buddha said um not country to country but even within india when he had his first group of disciples that were about to go out to teach and it was a very beautiful poetic exhortation about intention basically like teach for the good of the many the welfare of the many you know like be motivated by compassion in other words and the last thing he said was teach in the local idiom and so what's our local idiom it's this uh one of the main scientists um who has focused uh almost exclusively on loving kindness research is barbara frederickson at the university of uh north carolina um, she has a couple of books out. One called Positivity, and her uh, I think most recent book is called Love Two She talks a lot about the vagus nerve and uh, all of that. And uh, she, amongst other people, is you know they are trying to see the difference. I mean, I don't know many people who will look at the difference in terms of the neuroplasticity or the. <clears throat> you know, genetic expression, which is the hot new field. I mean, the brain is all hot now, I'm told. You know, everything's about genetic expression and cutting-edge research, which I never understood, and then someone explained to me. They said, well, I, don't know, actually, I just saw Richie, so he explained it again. He said, it's like our genes have little loudspeakers on them, and they can be turned up or turned down. And so even if you have a genetic load for some condition or issue that loudspeaker can be turned way down and these days i think that's so fascinating because of the studies that are coming out about uh, intergenerational effects of trauma for example you know and it's not a small thing to be able to affect that loudspeaker even if we can't change the dna we can make it irrelevant think of that you know, So that's really what a lot of research is, is emphasizing now. But uh, one of the issues has been that most of the research that is considered really uh, valid or you know very, very good, rigorous science has been on mindfulness and not so much on loving kindness as of yet. But the wave is really happening, which makes me very happy, of course.
1: And you bring up Barbara Fredrickson, who... Um whose theory is called Broaden and Build. And and if you're interested in this, this is really where to go. She studies Broaden and Build, Barbara Fredrickson. And is she in North Carolina? She's in North Carolina. Okay. Um, The theory is basically that we can systematically practice these states, these mind states that we're practicing this weekend. And over time, they actually become traits. They become traits. They become positive patterns. She does more work on joy, and it's so beautiful. Yeah, Uh, highly recommended reading, Barbara Fredrickson.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you said that about broaden and build. Um, Because I watched it pass right through my mind, and it went out. Because I think that's a significant thing to reflect on if we think about the positive qualities. She's she's a positive psychologist, so that you know is her slant on things we think about practicing gratitude we think about practicing appreciation or joy and what that means is you're not manufacturing it but you take a moment in psychology it's called savoring we can be very dismissive of the joy and delight that comes our way either we're quite distracted when it happens or it's not suiting our idea I, i find myself telling this story a lot lately too and uh, I have been going to Washington D.C. quite regularly to teach, and um, <clears throat> one year this friend took me to the area, you know, where there are all the there's this concentration of cherry trees, and when they bloom, um, it's cherry blossom season, and uh, we got there, and I just thought it was so exquisite, and these little uh, delicate pink blossoms and so many of them. I thought it was so beautiful. And then my friend said, oh no, it's past the peak. (laughs) And I thought, oh no, I'm not having a good experience. (laughs) This isn't good enough, you know? There are a lot we feel we don't deserve the really good feeling, the joy. Or we think it's too self-centered. There's so much suffering in the world. We shouldn't allow ourselves to enjoy this. But really how do we replenish you know if you feel more and more bereft and broken and overcome and exhausted there's not a lot of energy inside to try to help someone else or even pay attention to someone else so um there's this whole notion about savoring you know learning to appreciate take it in take a moment and say wow look at that that feels good look at those blossoms forget what she said you know (laughs) and that actually gives us the kind of inner resource it's not selfish in the end it shows loving kindness for ourselves in the same light is not selfish because it helps build that reservoir out of which we can authentically give to someone else not because we feel obliged or we can't stand it really um So Barbara's theory about positive emotion, which has gotten a lot of credence, since this was in her earlier book, uh, Positivity, is called Broaden and Build. We don't cultivate these positive states just for like a good feeling, and it's not something superficial and kind of endlessly seeking pleasure the way we do anyway, but it has the experience inhabiting or embodying These positive states like loving kindness, compassion, generosity, gratitude will broaden our perspective, first of all. And that's really interesting, right? Because we know the opposite. when, And mindfulness really reveals the opposite. When we are locked into anger, we're locked into fear, we're locked into greed. Not just the passing experience of those states, but when we're really in there. One of the main, main effects is tunnel vision, right? When you're, think about the last time you were really afraid. It's not likely to have been a time when you thought, you know what? If it doesn't work out this way, maybe it'll work out that way. It's like options are gone. They're off the table, right? Our world becomes really small and compressed. Or think about the last time you were angry at yourself. That's not likely also a time when you think, you know what, I did those five great things same morning that I did that really stupid thing. Those five great things, they're gone. Or we're full of desire, not kind of longing in, in the ordinary sense, but we're locked in, right? We need that object. We need that thing. We need that experience. It's the only thing that will ever make us happy. And were we to get it, it will make us happy forever. So we're leaving a lot out in that way of being. The truth of change, other possibilities, feeling sufficient without that thing, right? So the nature of being lost in those opposite states is tunnel vision. So it makes tremendous sense that as we cultivate these more positive states, it broadens our perspective. It opens our world. So I like that association with creativity. You know, it gives us more options. So it's not that you, you become this sort of stultified, self-righteous, you know, uh, narrow, narrowly focused sort of person. Your world really opens up through the cultivation of these states. And... I always find this so spooky. And I checked with her last time I saw her just to confirm it. They did some studies that showed that the um, cultivation of these positive states will actually help your peripheral vision. And I thought, isn't that spooky? I couldn't believe it. I read that. Really? And then I asked her. She said, yeah. Think of that. Our world really broadens and then the second part of that is build which means uh you know build inner resource because in truth it's it gets harder and harder to meet adversity or challenge when we feel we have nothing happening within right we feel so kind of empty in that negative sense so tired um we don't feel like we have resource or uh something happening that is actually going to be the wellspring out of which we can care about somebody else. So, uh, In Buddhist teaching, when they talk about generosity, material generosity, and remember those practices of loving kindness and things like that are like uh, generosity of the spirit. So we often look to material generosity uh, just for greater understanding because it's so concrete. So we look at material generosity and we understand that, first of all, there are a lot of reasons, a lot of different motivations for an act of giving. We could give somebody something because we like them, because we want something in exchange, because the TV cameras are going, uh, because we don't like them. We think it'll irritate them tremendously to own it. You know, like there's so many options. And... Uh, We might give because we feel obliged to. It's, you know, National Giving Day or, you know, it's it's a religious stricture or or everyone in our family is giving and then all eyes turn to us or, you know, whatever it is. The best kind of giving, they say, comes from a sense of inner abundance. Because it's not obligatory, it's not forced, it's not coerced. And we see that. I think that's why you know, studies show that people who might have very little, relatively speaking, externally, materially, are often the most generous. Um, and I've seen it certainly, I think, most notably probably uh, practicing in Burma, for example, where I was in Burma uh, mostly in the 80s. And you don't pay room and board even in the monasteries like the kind I went to to practice because everything you need is offered to you. Everything, every morsel of food. The culture was sort of built around an appreciation of generosity. So you were honored as a Burmese person to have the chance to go to the monastery and offer food for as many people as you could afford to. You didn't offer the food, you gave the money and they cooked the food at the monastery. So as many people as you could afford to feed. mean, you know, Like on your birthday, for example, in Burma, you don't expect to celebrate by getting gifts, you expect to celebrate by giving gifts. That's how you honor it. So it's your birthday, you go off to the monastery and you offer as much money as you can to feed as many people as you can or your daughter's graduating from high school or somebody in your family dies and you want to honor their memory. so it's like every occasion you sort of go off to the monastery and you offer food and those people in that time maybe still but certainly then it was one of the poorest countries in the world and every single morsel of food we got was offered and people would often come and they were so poor and watch you eat you know, like, sometimes it was a family, sometimes it was a whole village would come together. And some of those places have a waiting list of, like, a year for people eager to give, right? And so I'd be there and just experience that day after day. And I'd come back, you know? And I felt like I knew some number of people who even though they had so much more materially or externally compared to... The Burmese people did not at all have the internal feeling that they had enough. And actually, it was much more difficult for them to give. So what about when we don't feel we have anything going inside? We don't have enough. Or, using the idea of generosity of the Spirit, what we can do could never be enough. Our contribution could never mean anything. It's so small. It's so meager it's so measly it's all the same mind state right and so the efforts we make toward the cultivation of positive emotion which will build that sense of resource will also very strongly have the effect of allowing us to keep giving caring not necessarily materially but in terms of caring about others it's got to come from somewhere and that's why everything we do in the nature of like gratitude practice or um, loving kindness for ourselves especially is not considered at all selfish. You know, the very common um, example these days, of course, that people use is if you're on an airplane and they're doing the safety announcements and the flight attendant says, If the cabin pressure changes and the oxygen mass come down, put your own on first before you try to help anybody else. So I was talking to a writer friend of mine, and I said, I don't think I can bear to use that example. I mean, it's a great example. It's the perfect example. But because it's so perfect, like every colleague I have has used it I don't know if you used it in your book. Every colleague I have, pretty much, who's written a book has used it in their book. And I thought, I, I just can't bear it. At this point, it's like a cliche. And the person I was talking to, this friend, she said, oh, that's funny. I was just on an airplane the other day, and they made that announcement. And the woman sitting in the seat next to me said, I could never do that. I could never put my own oxygen mask on first. And I said, "Oh, maybe I can use it." you know? It's still like provocative and challenging and interesting. But think about that. I could never do that. It's too selfish to put my own oxygen mask on first. So that's the conditioning most of us have, which brings me to uh, the question of daily practice. Um, which I'm a giant advocate of. I said earlier somewhere that I'm the kind of person that's uh, very much helped by structure, which is true. So for me to have a commitment to sit every day (coughs) is actually a lot easier than a commitment, say, to sit three times a week if it's three times a week you know it'll be monday and i'll think monday's not a good day yeah. <laughs> let me wait till wednesday i'll start on wednesday wednesday friday sunday great schedule then wednesday comes around i'll think eh, maybe i'll just sit three times over the weekend right whereas if it's every day it's every day and it's like there it is right done or undone So uh, knowing that about myself, I offer that as a possibility. Uh, I don't think it's the end of the world if you don't sit every day, really. But you might find that's the easiest way possible to get a practice going. And it's almost like for once in our lives, we can try the easiest way rather than the hardest way. So not everybody feels you need to have that dedicated period of formal practice. Certainly we can practice mindfulness, whatever we're doing. We can remember loving kindness, walking down the streets of New York or sitting in somebody's waiting room. That's all true. But I think seeing my own experience and the experience of so many the easiest way possible to try to bring more mindfulness and loving kindness into our day is to have that dedicated period. It doesn't have to be that long. I just, you know, speaking of neuroscientists, I just saw Richie Davidson in Milwaukee um, where I was teaching for the first time and he came up or down, I forget, from Madison. I don't know which direction this uh, And somebody asked, it was like a dinner party, and somebody asked some question like that, and I said something, and he said to me, you know, you only have to do nine minutes a day. (laughs) And I said, I don't know if it's that healthy to go for the bare minimum, you know. (laughs) But science, at any rate, is showing us it's not 18 hours a day you've got to do, you know, in order to get these kind of effects. It's actually what people tell me, because I'm so identified with loving-kindness practice in the eyes of the world. You know, somebody, uh, not Richie, but some, another scientist said to me, you know, studies have shown that nine minutes of mindfulness and only seven minutes of loving-kindness will really change your brain. I said, thank you. <laughs> um, but isn't that remarkable? No one is saying six hours a day, ten hours a day. If you can do six hours a day, I think that's a great experiment for a different kind of life. If you can only do 10 minutes, do the 10 minutes. And it counts. It's not nothing. If you can only do three minutes, do the three minutes so that you have that everydayness thing, that rhythm more established. Because if you're interested in bringing these qualities into your ordinary day when you're at work or you're, you know commuting or whatever it might be I really believe the best way is to establish a dedicated practice because the difficulty with bringing something like mindfulness into an ordinary day is not doing it it's not that complicated it's remembering right so there are all these you know pretty well-known things you know which we've kind of mentioned like uh, Tick not Hans. Don't pick up the phone on the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe. Well, that's a nice idea, but how are you going to remember when it's like high pressure environment and you know lots of impatience in the room and the phone rings? You remember so much more easily if you sat that morning, really. So let's say ten minutes a day, ten to twenty uh every day and for a limited period of time as we've also talked about like what's realistic for you not a lifetime commitment say a month then at the end of the month you should assess and evaluate is this worth continuing but as i said earlier the place to look is not in your formal 10 minutes or whatever it's in your life you know is it making a difference in how i relate to myself, to others, to strangers, all of that. And you will find, at least even in the beginning, I think you'll find glimmers. And if you continue on, you'll find more and more. Isn't that amazing? I'm like a different person. And I don't even know when it happened, right? So I am like a huge fan of of daily practice. It doesn't have to be sitting. It could be walking. Uh, But it's not a time where you sit down thinking, I'll also figure out my vacation plan, <laughs> right, or my strategic plan for work. That may come up, but it's not our goal when we sit down. Our goal is just the cultivation of qualities like attention, awareness, loving kindness, compassion, and so on. And because most people do have more than one practice, um, and if you, you might have a practice like Asana as well, which I can let Steven speak to, but... Um, or maybe you already have, I don't know, but uh, the in terms of just the meditation, people divide it up in all kinds of different ways. Um, depending on how long you're sitting, you might start with some loving kindness or end with some loving kindness, have the body of your practice period be mindfulness. If you sit more than once, you might divide them up that way. You may be particularly intrigued by one practice and you just devote yourself to that for however long you want. As I said uh, earlier, when I went to Burma in 1985, and I practiced for three months of loving-kindness, that was the beginning of a four-year period where my only practice was loving-kindness. That's what I did every day, whether I was on retreat or I was just at home. And then that switched. and, And these days, when I sit every day and I do... It's almost all a kind of awareness practice. And then I do do loving kindness walking down the streets of New York if we ever run into each other, um, on airplanes, subways, things like that. Uh, many people ask, when should I practice? Or, I mean, there's some people that it's, it's intriguing, they're actually. Some teachers, actually, are trying to tie the science of habit formation into the regularity of one's practice. So that's like an experiment. But that's things like have a visual cue. Like if you sit on a backjack or a zafu or something, have it out. Right? Because you can only walk by that thing so many times without actually sitting down. Um... I should say the irony of it is that even though no one is saying we have to do this six hours a day, it is genuinely tough to find 10 minutes, which I find extraordinary, right? It's actually very hard to have a daily practice and put it into practice, not just think about it. And yet that's the thing that is actually going to make for the changes, so... Unlike, I think, some people in the yogic tradition, you know, when people say, should I sit in the morning? Should I sit a certain time of day? Should I sit in the evening? Uh, Usually we say, you should sit whenever you're actually going to sit. And for some people, like for me, that's the morning. It's like I get up and I try to just do it. That's the best thing for me. Other people tell me they practice in the parking lot at work. You know, they drive in early and they sit, and then they go to work. Or maybe it's the evening, which will help you sleep in, in a different way. Um, it's very personal. People say, should I sit alone or should I sit with others? And that was some of the questions, actually, that you, you wrote out had to do with that. It depends. Not everyone has the luxury of a group. Some people do, which is fabulous even intermittently to have a chance to sit with others but clearly you know many people were on our own and and it's up to us to get up in the morning and or whatever um so you have to see what's available to you groups can be tremendously supportive even for learning or study or a discussion something like that and practicing together if that happens that's why uh, those of you who were there last night when Lily was talking about the challenge, uh, we did in February. We seem to do in February on my website. Um, it's it's a very strong community that develops because you know, oh, it's February. We're, we're, there's a lot of people doing this and people are blogging about their experience. And you say, oh, look at that. Everyone's sleepy today uh, or whatever, you know, and you just feel such a sense of, of community, and there's lots of stuff like that, which can really be supportive. I, as you know, many of you know, have my own uh, uh, support group that we formed, just a small group of us formed for this friend of ours who said if he wakes up in the morning and he turns right, he's at his desk at his computer and if he turns left, he's at his sitting cushion. So we formed this group. There are only five of us all together, including this friend. And the idea is that when you've practiced, you send an email to the other four. And the subject line is always turned left. And if you want, you add something like turned left, snowing it, Kripalu, <laughs> it was mine yesterday. Um... And it's incredibly supportive. It's happened for years now. And because it's people, community, I think it inevitably brings up everything that comes up in our minds in relationship to ourselves and to one another. But that's fine because we can also laugh at ourselves a little bit. So, for example, because I've had a daily practice for so long, for months and months and months, I was the first one to write always. And then I got really paranoid. I thought, oh, they think I'm showing off. You know, they think I'm just like a goody-goody. And I would wait like seven hours. (laughs) Then I'd write, oh, turn left. You know, but if we have a basic good humor about our own minds, uh, it's incredibly supportive. So I teach uh, one intensive a seven-day retreat each year at the Insight Meditation Society of Loving Kindness to the tremendous gratitude of everybody. I moved it from February to May and uh, just last year for the first time. And last year, uh, after hearing me talk about this, um, I later ran into somebody and said, I formed a gratitude buddy system with someone at that retreat. We didn't know each other before the retreat. But we just decided each night we were gonna contact each other and say what we had to be grateful for from the day and, and that it was really useful. So people form their own kind of support systems as well. Uh, you can go on retreat if you can, if your life circumstance allows that. Uh, because as you see, you know it's, it's a tremendous sort of immersion. Um, And then I'll just say one more thing, and I'll ask you to talk about continuing a yoga practice. Speaking of the immersion, uh, just as for those of you who are here for the first time, uh, and even if you've been here before, to some degree, in the beginning, it's kind of culture shock. Leaving for everybody is really sort of culture shock. Because even though we're not silent necessarily here, and we might be spending money and shopping and doing all those things. There's uh, a tremendous amount of quieting that we've all done without realizing it. And kind of slowing down and sensitivity and so on. And the world is moving at a different pace. Um, so at first, for almost everybody, leaving, it's a little bit like, whoa. Uh, but you'll be fine, really. <laughs> uh Like culture shock, it's just a little bit of an adjustment. And um, remember to breathe. And if you have a few minutes, go off on your own. And those of you going to an airport will especially experience, like, whoa, people are really fast and weird here. Um, So the other part of the story that I told yesterday about dropping the jar when I was first doing loving-kindness practice and... Uh, the month we opened up the center in Barrie and I got to do it for a week before something happened to a friend of ours in Boston. Uh, so several of us had to suddenly leave the retreat and I dropped the jar. And, uh, my first thought was, you are really a klutz, but I love you. So that story I tell all the time because I think it's so indicative of the way the practice works in ways we don't even see it working at the time. The other part of the story is that we got into a car, a few of us, and went to Boston. And we stopped for lunch on the way. We had lunch, and at the end of lunch, Jack Cornfield looked up and he said, "Does anybody have any money?" <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, "Oh right, that's what they like out here." <laughs> money. You don't just get your tray, you know, and then, like decide do you want, do you want a bowl on a plate or money so uh it's a little bit like that often and leaving and uh but you really will be okay let me show you um and loving kindness always helps as you're moving through that airport or you're sitting in the diner or wherever you choose to eat uh things like that so what about continuing a practice
1: so i was just <laughs> thinking about your Describing the fact that that we slow down, in a, especially when there's silence and yoga and meditation. And uh, I've done many, many retreats with Sharon at the Insight Meditation Society, and people get so slowed down. the The, the center is not unlike Kripalu; it's in a big old building on a. Is, it's Pleasant Street, right? Yeah. It's on Pleasant Street, which is so perfect. But at the end of a retreat from all the cars empty out from IMS on Pleasant Street, and everybody's driving about 10 miles an hour <laughs> down the street. <laughs> and especially after the three-month retreat, yeah. you're, like, going like that. <laughs> <laughs> really slowed really down. <laughs> but there is a, there is a benefit. There's, there's something called the post-meditation experience where there's a moment, because you're so attuned and sensitized <coughs> when you see your reality, your reality at work or at home with, with fresh eyes, just for a moment. You know what I'm talking about, Sharon? I, I remember once, when I was a kid, we, we went to live in Europe for a year and we left our home. And when we came back, it was fresh eyes, just for a couple of days. It was like, wow, this is a magic house I never realized. Uh, and then it goes away. So take advantage of the post-meditation experience to to see a little bit with fresh eyes. We're having that right now. We have a new CEO, and she's only been here a few weeks. And I'm I'm saying to her, Barbara, take advantage of this. You're going to see stuff now that you will never see again in your next ten years. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So as far as as maintaining a practice, Sharon, I'm very like you are in the sense that structure really is essential for me. Mm -hmm. So here's my practice. Twice a week I sit and I I live in Albany now and I looked really hard for the practice center, the group that I wanted to sit with. And there's a Shambhala center in Albany. So twice a week I sit there and I sit for an hour and a half, which I really like. I I do Mm -hmm. both shamatha and Vipassana. and there is a certain, I don't know if this is cheating, but there's a certain kind of drafting that you get from the group. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we sit and we walk and we sit and we walk. And I there's also this mechanism called cueing, psychological cueing, which is if you do your practice at the same time and place um, every day on a regular basis, you get cued into that same sp- state, the, the environment and the the just the physical environment cues you back into the state. So it's a little bit of a support. So twice a week I do an hour and a half of meditation. Twice a week I do a yoga class, a hot yoga class. I'm, I'm really into hot yoga <laughs> right now. And for, for years we had Bikram yoga here. Bikram actually is a good friend of ours. He came and built us a studio on his specifications. And so hot yoga for Bikram is 110 degrees. But my hot yoga is 90 degrees, which is just about right. And I love the, i got a beautiful teacher, I love that. So twice a week I do that, twice a week I meditate. Once a week I have a chanting group. So just recently, chanting is probably the oldest practice in the, in the yoga lexicon. It's certainly the origin of meditation, because these monks discovered 2,000 years ago that um, by concentrating the mind on a sacred syllable like Om over and over again, the mind becomes very absorbed. It's everything we talked about on opening night around absorption and concentration. So I have a group that meets in my office once a week and we chant for an hour. And that's like an hour of guaranteed bliss. And then once a month I have a Dharma group. My Dharma group meets at my house tonight. Um, yeah, we talk about Dharma. And then on the weekends, I, I wing it. Like, what do I really feel like doing today? Do I want to do yoga or meditation or chant? Sometimes I chant. I live, in, I live 50 minutes away. Sometimes I chant all the way from my house in Albany to Kripalu, uh, which I'm not necessarily recommending because you can get very expansive, and I'm not saying it's the safest thing in the world. I do do it, and it's lovely. Um, there's only one stoplight between me and and albany so so yeah structure regularity it's in my schedule and everybody knows it where's steve oh it's tuesday between five thirty and 7 he's at shambhala everybody knows it i know it it's booked in that's the only way i can do it sharon um, and you'll notice that combination of of yoga and hatha yoga and meditation I, I put up here the, the, the eight limbs of yoga. And any of you who are yogis know that um, the practice of hatha yoga, or what we call asana, which actually literally means seat, pranayama breathing and pratyahara absorption. The, yeah. Oh, okay. It still says it's on. It sounds like it's on. It came on, back yeah, on. Yeah. yeah, it came back on. Um, asana, pranayama these two are yama and niyama which are basically ethical practice it's off again Um, ethical practice and then asana, pranayama and pratyahara the next three in the eight limbs are specifically to cultivate the qualities, the physical qualities the physiological qualities that lend themselves to meditation so you'll notice Very often when I worked with you over the weekend, we started with some kind of movement. We did a little stretching on our feet or we did chair yoga. That's because those practices are intentionally created to promote the right physiology in the body. We're back on. Um, to, To promote the practice of deep meditation. What do they do? They attenuate states of hyperarousal, which many of us live in. I don't know about you, but I'm a very busy guy. Um, I find when I sit down that there's a certain amount of hyperarousal. The kind of the the mainline approach to dealing with hyperarousal is through, directly through the body. So when we work with, so the most intense form of hyperarousal, for example, is PTSD. We've, that's when that's a refractory state that never ends. So we found with our PTSD patients, vigorous yoga poses more than, and pranayama more than anything else goes right in, it's an intervention into the physiology, calms them down, then they can meditate maybe for a brief period. But we all live on some spectrum of hyperarousal. And so these are very, very effective. The final three, dharna, dhyana, and samadhi, are actually different levels of concentration and mindfulness. So there's a, there's a hierarchy here which is very effective, and I, I pretty much follow it in my own practice. Um, and, and we do here at Kripalu, too. You'll notice, did you notice the new rug in the lobby? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a new rug that has the eight limbs all around the, like a big wheel. And of course... Buddhism has an eightfold path. Do you want to say what that is? Uh, I don't think I remember. It. But it's
0: funny because Lily said, I never noticed this rug before, thinking she just hadn't new. been mindful. <laughs> and I said, oh, maybe it's new, <laughs> which is true. Yeah, I mean, there is an eightfold path in Buddhist teaching as well. And we'll just, um, I'll say that and we'll, we'll sit together and close um, because you have to fill out evaluations. Um, And it's basically three chunks of activity uh, which make up a life. You know, uh, even though it's not classically where it starts, there's a whole chunk that has to do with how we live. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Isn't that interesting? Livelihood has its own limb. Um, Because after all, if we spend an awful lot of our day in a certain way, it has an effect. Uh, One of the things about a teaching like the Eightfold Path is that inner work and outer work are very connected, right? So if you practice generosity externally, as an example, it's part of right action, then internally, the ability to let go gently, relinquish what we don't really need, strengthens. And as we practice that, the ability to be generous externally strengthens. So, uh, these teachings are very profound for that reason. That uh, nothing we do is wasted. You know, it's all part of like the unified field of our lives, which are seamless. Um, so there's the whole realm: right speech, right action, right livelihood. Uh, there's the realm of um meditation right effort right concentration right mindfulness and then the two which actually classically begin the the eightfold path because it's not a path in a linear sense it's a cycle um are right uh, view it's like world view about life and right intention you know having intentions of generosity and loving kindness and so on rather than greed, hatred, and delusion. So they say we start with that because we need enough right view to think this path may be worth pursuing. I don't know that it really is, but we need enough so that we have a sense of this isn't just an academic exercise. This isn't just a book for my cousin, right? Right? This is something to breathe life into, to experiment with, so I can see for myself if it's worth doing. So that's the idea of right view and right intention coming at the beginning. And then we make the experiment through how we live, how we speak to one another, um, how we practice meditation. And all of that leads to a more refined right view and right intention. So my friend, our friend Sylvia calls it the eightfold dot. It's just kind of going round and round and round and round, uh, which is really true. So in terms of loving-kindness practice, if you are exploring it at a more reasonable pace, um, there are kind of classical categories. And again, it's not like every session, but over a longer period of time, We explore the offering of loving kindness to each of these categories or something like them. Because it's just emblematic of an unfolding of a life. You know, we have those we feel very close to, those we don't know that well and so on. So classically, we begin with ourselves. We offer loving kindness to a benefactor, someone who's helped us or inspired us, even if we've never met them. We offer loving kindness to a friend. And if you want to get very uh, much more refined in your practice, you might offer loving kindness to a friend who's doing well right now or a friend who's not doing so well right now. So it has a flavor of sympathetic joy or compassion. We offer loving kindness to a neutral person, uh, which is my kind of secret favorite. You know, that is the person you see periodically. That's like that woman in the grocery store you see periodically you don't have a real relationship with you don't have a strong strong feeling about because over time what you discover is that the offering of loving kindness in your meditation means you're paying attention to that person even not knowing their story so that over time you see that you see them and you see them and it's not like seeing a stranger anymore there's something much more profound that happens. So it's fun. You know, uh, that woman in the animation became my neutral person. And uh, then I had to move. I had, I, had, I lost my sublet, so I had to move like eight blocks away, which in New York City, as many of you know, is like a world away. Like different grocery store and <laughs> different everything. But every once in a while, I'd be back in that old neighborhood, and I'll walk by, and I'll go, wonder if she's in there you know (laughs) we offer loving kindness to a difficult person uh the suggestion is not right away the person who has hurt us the most hideously in this life or has behaved so horribly on the world stage not that we never go there and not that it's wrong if you decide to go there but it's hard right there are a lot of very real questions that It's not exactly that we figure them out along the way, but we have different experiences along the way. Like if you start with a person who annoys you slightly and slowly make your way to a more and more difficult person, there's time for those experiences to cook. So that even if you don't have the words to express it, you've gone through something so that you're better able to understand what it does mean to have compassion for yourself as well as for someone else. Or compassion for someone and knowing at the same time it's wrong to give in to them, that you're not going to do that. Or compassion for somebody and realizing, I can't fix it. I can't make it all better. So again, you may not have the words, and we're not analyzing that along the way, but you're going through different stuff. So that's the idea of, you know, not starting right away with just the most unthinkably hard person. But I find most people want to, so I'm just saying that. Uh, If it's too hard, it's always correct to go back to offering loving kindness to yourself. And then finally, loving kindness for all beings everywhere. So as I said, we, in any one sitting, we usually just have the bookends. We start with ourselves, we end with all beings, and... Depending on how much time you have or what's happening in your life, maybe there's one being in between, you know, or two. It depends. And it's really up to you. So thank you so much. It's been a a tremendous delight to be with you all. We actually, you know, we have dates for next year already for those people who like to live in the future. Uh, (laughs) uh, And I hope to see
1: you again somewhere. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalsberg.com.